Thank you, Tammy. That is the message that the apostles are declaring specifically as we look at Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas. You remember that Paul and Barnabas were preaching the word of God wherever they would go, even when fleeing persecution. They knew that the Lord was directing them to another field of gospel opportunity. Verse 7 tells us that they were continually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Derby, Lystra, and the surrounding area. So as they're coming into that area, in that region, they're beginning to preach the word of God and, and people are being saved. And yet, there's some things that we're going to see here, and, and the first thing that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 8, we'll read verses 8 to 10, is the miraculous healing of the lame man. So look with me in our passage this morning as the Bible relates to us, and there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. God's power is displayed by doing the impossible. It's interesting because Luke, who was a physician, goes to great lengths to describe very specifically the hopelessness of this man as far as his physical condition. He had absolutely no strength in his feet. He was born that way from his mother's womb. He may have been, been born deformed. Something may have been missing or malformed. We don't know. But he was lame in his feet. He had no strength in his feet. And he was not able to stand. He had never walked. This was something that, humanly speaking, was absolutely hopeless as far as his future to be ever able to even stand, let alone to walk. And God's power is displayed by doing the impossible. And the Holy Spirit's leading is evident in Paul's discernment. The Bible says that, and this is interesting because he beheld him. We're going to look in just a couple of minutes how this parallels Peter's healing of the layman at the temple. But it's interesting that both of these apostles, these men of God, directly chosen, handpicked, you might say, by Jesus Christ as his ambassadors, as apostles, those establishing the church, through whom he gave divine inspired scripture and message that both Peter, when he is beholding the lame man at the temple, and Paul here beholds them. In other words, he looks at him, he's staring at him, he is considering. I believe what is happening here is that the Spirit of God is speaking to Paul. And Paul is looking, and I think the Holy Spirit is saying something like this to him. Hey, Paul, you see that man right there, that lame man? He is believing the gospel. And I believe... Paul is thinking, okay, Lord, he's believing the gospel. What's next? So he doesn't just immediately say, well, he believes the gospel. That means that he should be healed. He is waiting for the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, because remember that the apostles had no divine supernatural power that God just gave them that they could use at their own discretion. But instead, they were always specifically led by the Holy Spirit to perform these signs and wonders at the direction 
the specific direction of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is gazing on him and discerns because the Holy Spirit shows him this man has the faith to be healed. I believe because the man had faith to be saved. For instance, when Jesus heals, remember there were four men who had a friend who was paralyzed on a cot and these four men come to bring their friend on his cot to Jesus to be healed. They come and there's a crowd surrounding the house where Jesus is preaching. And so they go several houses down. They find an outside staircase that was common the way the houses were built. And that would lead to the upstairs because that upstairs in the Sea of Capernaum, uh, those houses were built very close together. Matter of fact, it is said that in Capernaum, where this healing took place, you could actually walk from one side of the city to the other without ever your foot touching the ground. You could literally walk from housetop to housetop because they were so close together. And so these men found in this, uh, this staircase that was like an upstairs, there's like a flat roof with kind of a half wall around it, like a railing. And because of the breezes coming off of the Sea of Galilee, it was a very comfortable place to entertain guests. So they would normally have an outside staircase leading up to that area. It was a living space. And so they take him up one of those staircases across several houses and they begin to tear up the roof of the house where Jesus is preaching and they lower their friend to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, see those four men's faith believed, was convinced that Jesus could meet their friend's need by healing him. And so they weren't gonna give up just because there was a crowd and just because there was a few obstacles. They were gonna go great lengths for God to do a work in their friend's life. This man on the cot, I believe Jesus sees his faith too because the first thing that Jesus says to this man is not, you're healed, take up your bed and walk. What does Jesus say to him first? He says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus, knowing what's in the heart of that man, knew that that man was responding not only with a faith to be healed, but faith to be saved. And folks, that is man's greatest need. I am convinced that if that, Jesus gave that man a choice, son, would you rather have your sins forgiven and remain paralyzed, or would you rather be healed from your paralysis but not receive salvation without a doubt. I believe that man was a man of faith who would have said to the Lord Jesus, leave me paralyzed to save my soul. But Jesus does all things well. And in evidence of his power and in verification of his claim as Messiah, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say to these, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. And it was so amazing that even those who'd been unbelievers still said, this is nothing but the power of God. I mean, they were in amazement. Their jaw hit the floor. They were shocked. And they said, this is nothing but the power of God. And here, as Paul is preaching in Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding area, he comes into Lystra, and there is a man probably sitting at the gate. It would have been a common place for somebody who was crippled like that, probably begging. The Bible doesn't indicate that that's what he was doing, but very likely that he was begging at the, the city gate. As Paul's been preaching the gospel everywhere he's going, this man, I believe, listened and believed the gospel, and the Spirit said, heal him. Speak to him. He has faith to be healed. And so Paul just told him, stand up and walk, and immediately, and here's a guy, he didn't say, but I can't, right? I've never, I've never been able to stand, let alone walk a step in my life, and you're saying, stand up straight? I can't do it. Come help me up. He doesn't say anything like that. He, do you understand the faith that this man had who had been paralyzed from his mother's womb who would have had, get this, he wouldn't have even had a developed sense of balance to stand. 
What an incredible miracle that when Paul says to him, because the Spirit prompted him, and Paul's listening and had the discernment of the Holy Spirit, that this man had faith to be healed. And so Paul says, stand upright. That the man leaped up, literally he jumped up. Isn't that amazing? He didn't just kind of work his way up and struggle and pull himself up. He jumped up and he stood up straight. How can you stand up straight like that when you've never stood in your life? And he walked. What an incredible miracle. But remember that the point of the miracle is not primarily to meet that physical need. Although, boy, what goodness and graciousness of God to heal that man of his paralyzed condition, of his lame from his mother's womb. But it verifies the message of the gospel. That what Paul and Barnabas are preaching is the message of God. And it's verified by the miraculous power of God in this man's life. God displayed his power through miracles to authenticate the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure. He's talking about the gospel. He says, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That is the, the divine supernatural power of God to cleanse man from his sin, to make a filthy sinner into somebody who is absolutely righteous in his, and perfect in his standing before God, to transform a nature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a supernatural spirit-empowered transformation. That's a miracle. Only God can do that. And, the, and this healing just verified the message of the gospel. And God gets the glory. Miracles through the apostles declared, this is God's messenger, listen to him. And listen what the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching. And he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man, listen to this, approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. The Father even verified Jesus as Messiah through the miracles that Jesus did. So yes, did those miracles meet a physical need? Yes, but a physical need is still only a temporal need. But man's, man's need goes beyond the needs of the temporal. Now don't get me wrong, is God concerned about our temporal needs? Absolutely. He knows every detail of your life. He knows your every need. He loves you and he will meet your needs. But the greatest needs we have are not the temporal. They are the eternal. They're not the, the physical. They are the spiritual. And God verifies and glorifies his message of the gospel through this miracle that he worked through the apostle Paul. The similarity between the account of Peter healing the layman at the temple and this account teaches us that it really doesn't matter which of us God uses because God can use anyone he pleases. Listen to this account in Acts chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour and a certain man lame from his mother's womb. Hmm, where did we hear that before? Right here in Acts chapter 14 in our text in verse 8. Who they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called beautiful to ask alms of them that entered the temple who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms and Peter fastening his eyes upon him with John there's that same idea of beholding him he is following 
and listening to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, though God has not in this time, because we have the complete revelation of the scriptures, I believe God does no longer verify the message of the gospel through the miracles of healings. But is God still doing miracles in our world? And you know what? One of the greatest miracles that another person can see, an unbeliever can see, is the life of a transformed and being transformed Christian. And we can brag on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not bragging on ourselves, but we can brag on him, if I can say that respectfully. And we can give him the praise and our lives can live out. Not Christ's perfection because we're not perfect, but we can live out his character and we become more and more like him. And his people see that when we react in supernatural ways, is it natural or supernatural to love your enemies? That's supernatural. Is it natural or supernatural to bless those who persecute you? It's supernatural. Is it natural or supernatural to continue to proclaim the gospel when people are seeking to kill you because you're proclaiming the truth? Is that natural or supernatural? That's supernatural. And we see here the supernatural power of God, but you know what? The supernatural power of God is still at work. Amen? And we can see God working miracles in people's lives, not obvious outward miracles maybe that many can see as many would have seen this man lame from his mother's womb, jump up on his feet and begin to walk. But our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the working of God in people's lives, how many times does the goodness of God lead folks to repentance and to faith? Back in our passage in Acts chapter 3, Peter, fasting his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us, and he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but as such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up immediately. His feet and ankle bones received strength, and he, leaped, leaping up, stood and walked, and entering with them into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. And you study this man's life a little later, you see he is a born-again believer. This man God used as a verification of the gospel message. And this man who was lame, God used as a verification of the gospel message. And that also brings me to this. You know what? Sometimes there, there are things in our lives that, that, that are difficulties, that are painful. I mean, and I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be born lame like that and to live that kind of a life. Maybe to a certain extent, this man got used to it. But I'm sure that it was still very difficult. And yet when God healed him, how God used his testimony as a verification of the gospel. And the man at the temple whom Peter healed. Because you know what, folks? It doesn't matter which of us God uses. God can use any one of us. If we are just willing to be led of the Spirit of God, controlled of the Spirit of God, and proclaim His message. God does supernatural work. But look at the superstitious response of the unbelieving. Look at verses 11 to 13. Verse 11, and when the people saw what Paul had done, okay, there's a little misconception, right? Did Paul do that? Not really. Who did it? The Spirit of God did it. Jesus Christ did it through Paul. But these are, these are heathen Polytheistic unbelievers. 
When they see what Paul did, that was their perception. Did God use Paul? Yes. Did, God, did Paul say those words? Yes. Did Paul do the healing? No, God did. Okay? But when Paul, when they saw what Paul did or had done, they lifted up their voices, crying in the speech of Lake Caonia. The gods are come down unto us in the likeness of men, and they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which, went, uh, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. It's interesting that they called him these two gods, right? So the one is Barnabas, they call like Zeus, like he is like the ultimate God. And the other one was Mercury or Jupiter, which was, was, was the God of oration, or he was actually the mouthpiece of Zeus, okay? And so there was actually a, a legend that these two gods had one time visited Lystra. And they came in the form of men. And as they went through the city, nobody showed them proper hospitality except for one elderly couple. And these two gods warned this couple, we are going to destroy everybody in Lystra and spare you two because you showed us proper honor. And they killed all of the people of Lystra. That was the legend that they had concerning these gods. So you can imagine their excitement and their fear, right, uh, over this. And maybe that is why the high priest is like, look, guys, we better hurry up and do sacrifice, you know, and show these guys homage. Because if we don't, it might happen to us what happened to the city before. And so let's bring out the oxen with the garlands and let's do an, a sacrifice and let's show them that honor as gods. And we're going to show them how smart we are. We know you're not mere men. We know that you're gods and you're these two gods, man. You, you, we, we know who you are. And we're going to, we, we want to do it because we don't want to get wiped out. And so there was an excitement. And so they revert to their native tongue. Bible scholars are divided over why. Some theorized that maybe um, they thought that these gods only spoke Greek and Latin, and so they reverted to their mother tongue, hoping that the gods didn't realize what they were saying or what they were planning and recognizing them. They were just going to do kind of throw them a surprise party to worship them. Others believed that they were just in such shock and such awe that they just reverted to their mother tongue uh, rather than in the Greek, which was the trade language of the world. And sometimes you know, we get very, very excited if... You know, one language that you're speaking is your second language. You'll revert to your native tongue almost without thinking. And that may be what happened here. But I believe that they were, they were very afraid. And maybe they were very excited. I mean, what an, what a, what an awesome thing for them to think that these, these men might be these gods. And that they're seeing a legend repeated in front of them. And they weren't going to make the same mistake. Well, because they spoke in their native tongue... Paul and Barnabas didn't understand that language. They didn't really know what was going on. Okay, so then we see in verses 14 to 18, the gospel-focused reaction of the apostles when they did realize it. In verse 14, which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out, saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. Or we're, we're natural men like you. I mean, you pinch us and we say, ouch, okay? You stab us and we bleed. We are of the same kind of human nature as you are. We are not gods is what they're saying. All right. And, and we preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, 
He hath left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained the, they the people and they, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And they rent their garments to show strong opposition um, against this and their great grief over this. So they would have had an outside like a robe or a coat and then they would have had a, a t-shirt or a tunic underneath. That's what they would have ripped and they wouldn't just completely rip it, all right? You couldn't just go to Kohl's or somewhere uh, and just buy another shirt, all right? But they would rip it several inches, okay? So it was really gonna be a sign of grief that because they would have had few clothes, they may not even had another tunic or two. Um, and so when they would rip that, it would show that this was something extremely serious. You wouldn't just rip this because you got mad, all right, or something like this. This was something that was an extreme emotion being expressed uh, 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 of, of sorrow, of grief, uh, of, of great opposition, um, sometimes even of wrath. And here it, the Bible gives us very clearly why it was. that It was over this great grief and opposition of what was being done that they would they rent their garments and they ran in among them. They ran in among this crowd that's coming to, to worship them. And, and they preached this message. Interesting, though, as they run in among the crowd, that they took this as a gospel opportunity. Right? Paul and Barnabas didn't say, hey, guys, uh, to each other. Um, these guys are coming to worship us. We can't have that. Uh, but, you know, they, they, we're not being persecuted this time. So why don't we just kind of leave town real fast? Maybe we can outrun the crowd and, uh, and we'll just leave and, and not say anything. We'll go somewhere else and preach the gospel. They didn't run. They stayed. They went in among the people. And they, and they pled with them, look, turn from this emptiness. Turn from these false gods. Turn to the true and living God. They were not afraid to declare idolatry and superstition to be vanity. False is false and true is true. We live kind of in this age that says, well, you know, that's your truth. This is my truth. Okay. And sometimes you'll see these bumpers that are made out of all different religious symbols that says coexist. Okay. Folks, we don't go about picking fights, but we call truth, truth. And we call error, error. And we stand up for the truth. Because Jesus is the way, not a way. He is the truth, not a truth. He is the life, not a source of life. And no man can be reconciled to the one true God except through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. And we've got to be willing to call false religion false. And we need to plead with people, come out of this false. And we do it in love. We do it in compassion. We proclaim the truth. But folks, sometimes we need to go and don't misunderstand, along with proclaiming the truth, we need to take the step of saying, and what you're believing is false. Leave that. That philosophy or that religion of trusting in your own character, in your own good works, or in through some religious ceremonies or rituals that you have gone through is sufficient for your salvation, will damn you to hell. You'll be eternally condemned to the second death if your faith is in your works. And some religions say, well, believe on Jesus, but you also have to do these things. No. Faith is, salvation is only through faith in Christ alone. As many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ plus good works. You don't trust Jesus Christ to initially save you, but then you've got to do good works to keep yourself saved. Jesus said, and I give unto them, John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John 3, 36, he that has the Son has everlasting life. I've been given the gift of eternal life. I already possess it. I'm not going to get it someday when I die. I already have it. And God's not an Indian giver and will never take it away. I can't lose it. John chapter 10, I cannot even pluck myself out of his hand. No man can pluck me out of the Father's hand. But we need to also be willing to stand up like Paul and Barnabas. They went into the middle of a bunch of superstitious, false religionists and said, turn from these vanities. This is empty. This is not just a dead-end street, friends. You keep going this way, and you are on the road to the lake of fire. Instead, believe in the one true living God. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 15 to 17, here is what the Spirit of God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write to show the foolishness of worshiping a false god. Then shall it be for a man to burn. Speaking of, he cuts down a tree, he has a log. He shall take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he shall kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image and falleth down unto, thereunto. He burneth a part thereof in the fire. With part he eateth flesh. He roasteth, roasteth, and is satisfied. Yea, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image, and falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. I don't know about you, but I don't want to serve a flammable god. Look, you have this log, and you take five feet of the log, and you split it up, and you start a fire because you're cold, and you start to warm up. And then you bring some along some of that venison, that fresh-killed venison or a fish that you caught out of the stream, you know, and you clean it, and you put a little more wood on there on top of those coals, and you get it nice and hot, and then you begin to fix that meat. So you're warming that up. You're warming the outside with a fire. You're warming the inside with a good cooked meat. And then you see some more and you say, hmm, I still got another 10, 15 feet. I think I'll carve a God. And you carve a God and then you set it up and you worship that God when you just split part of it up to make a fire. Do you see how foolish that is? There is only one God and that is our God, God Almighty. They appeal to God's general revelation in nature to introduce the gospel invitation Notice when Peter preaches to the Jews, we even looked when, when Paul in Acts chapter 13 preached in the synagogue to the Jews and the God-fearers, did he appeal just to general revelation first or did he preach from the Old Testament scriptures? He preached from the Old Testament scriptures very clearly. And he cites and goes through Israel's history and general history from the perspective that God has prepared all these things for the coming of his Messiah who has come and this is the way of salvation and this is God's story of history. But here, these people worshipped these false gods, Greek gods that have been adopted by the Romans. They worship many gods. And Paul and Barnabas say, stop believing in this vanity, in this false religion. Instead, trust in the living God. And then they begin to talk about this living God. Look around you. This is the God who sends rain from heaven. It's not other gods. This is the one true God. He sends rain from heaven. He created everything that you see. 
Isn't it amazing that there are so many plants that God created that are fit for human consumption? Isn't it amazing all of the medicinal value in so many plants that can be extracted that God not only gave those plants but gave man the intelligence to be able to discover some of those things in, in the science of medicine? Isn't that amazing that God would so provide for us in such a way? And this is the God who loves you. And faith, God's invitation to faith has always been to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. How can they do that if they've never heard of Jesus Christ? Well, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Acts chapter 14. He is appealing to God's general revelation and goodness within his creation. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Man chose to walk away from the one true God. And yet God has left a witness within general revelation of all of nature so that man can recognize that there is one true God who exists, who knows them, who loves them, who is good towards them. And when they respond to general revelation, God gives specific revelation and Paul and Barnabas did not only preach general revelation, and neither should we, but there are times we need to start with that. You know, isn't it sad in our country, the great percentage of Americans that have never been to church or that have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, that is the world in which we live, even in the United States of America. And so we need to be able to take these biblical examples and we need to be able to incorporate them in our lives in the way that we share the gospel with people. So as you're talking to somebody and you begin to ask them about their religious background, you're not merely asking them just to find out something about them or to introduce them to the gospel, although that's part of it, but you're also trying to find out what is the extent of their knowledge? What do they believe? Do they have any understanding of the scripture or not? If they do have understanding of the scripture, we can go directly to scripture. If they don't, we have to start with divine and general revelation and move towards the scripture. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. But I want you to see, last of all, the cost of gospel opportunity. We saw the healing of the lame man. What a great opportunity. As God verifies the gospel message through this miracle, there was a superstitious response of the unbelieving, the gospel-focused reaction of the apostles as they proclaimed God's general revelation. They're appealing to the people, don't do this. Turn to the one true living God. But there is a cost associated with gospel opportunity. Look with me, if you would, at verses 19 and 20. 
And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch, that's Antioch of Pisidia, and Iconium. Were they the friends of Paul and Barnabas? Look at the context. No, they weren't. And having, who persuaded the people, that's the same idea that we saw earlier. They poisoned public opinion against Paul and Barnabas. And having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Albeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derbe. The fixed in unbelief Jews from Iconium and from Antioch of Pisidia traveled all the way to Derbe. For those from Iconium, this was still about a 90 to 100 mile journey and double that from those that came from Antioch of Pisidia. And isn't it interesting how the enemies of the gospel often find each other and combine forces to attack the gospel. And yet there is no human power. There is no enemy of the gospel that can stand against the power of God and his truth. Though hand, the Bible says, joined in hand, they shall not go. Unpunished. Think for a moment in the book of Revelation how at the end of the tribulation the confederacies of the nations gather together to annihilate Israel. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, comes from heaven and all the armies of the earth then turn their focus from Israel to Jesus. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, and he slays the nations. The whole world combined together cannot stand against God. All he must do is speak one divine word, and his enemies are conquered. And folks, as we proclaim the gospel, does God allow us to suffer persecution? Yes. Was did God put push the pause button on his sovereignty when Paul was stoned at Lystra? Of course not. God in his sovereignty allowed these evil men, enemies of the gospel, to even go through Lystra, Lystra poison the minds of unbelievers who then pursued after Paul and Barnabas and they accomplished what they had started at Iconium. Remember that they had a conspiracy? They wanted to stone him to death? Well, they accomplished that mission at Lystra. And you know, they must have felt pretty satisfied, breathed a sigh of relief, supposing their enemy was dead. And then in a final act of defiance against God and disrespect of Paul, they took his corpse and they drug it outside the city. And they thought they were done. But you know what? Though God in his sovereignty allowed Paul to be stoned to where they thought he was dead. And, and Bible scholars are divided whether Paul truly died or did not die. You know what? Either way, they weren't just taking chunks of gravel and throwing it at Paul. They were taking huge rocks and crushing Paul's body. Either way, whether Paul actually died or almost died, it was an absolute divine miracle of God as much as raising up the lame man that he was able to come, to, to come back to consciousness and to stand up and to walk. 
back into the city. There was a cost for this gospel opportunity. And you know, we talked about earlier that when Paul and Barnabas got the message that there was this mob on their way to stone them to death at Iconium, everybody in Iconium knew the gospel. They knew about it. They had heard it. Some were for it. Some were against it. Everybody basically had chosen sides. There was a church established. Many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles in that city of Iconium had believed the gospel. A church was established. The gospel would be promoted. They realized with prudence it was time for them to go on. Here was one victory gained. God was using this persecution to move them to the next place to proclaim the gospel. They come to Lystra and we see the events of what happened. And Paul and Barnabas are not afraid to proclaim the gospel at Lystra to these Gentiles. Apparently there was no synagogue at Lystra because that was always their pattern. If there was a synagogue, they would go there first. They would proclaim the word of God to them and then they would turn and proclaim the, God, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. But apparently there was no synagogue at Lystra. So they're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They're still, because God's Holy Spirit prompted Paul to heal this man. Paul healed this man who had faith to be healed. And the crowd and their superstition and fear come to offer sacrifice to them which they reject. And the enemies of the gospel come in that timing and turn the opinion and the attitude of the people against Paul and Barnabas. They seek out Barnab Paul and Barnabas. Somehow God protects Barnabas from being stoned but allows Paul to be stoned. But even though they thought they could destroy the messenger of the gospel, they couldn't and they didn't. Matter of fact, even when at Rome, Paul was beheaded, did that stop the promotion of the gospel just because one of his messengers was martyred? Absolutely not. And the gospel will never be stopped. We get to be part of an incredible opportunity in promoting salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the growth of God's kingdom here. And we look forward to the final consummation of entering into that kingdom, that final established kingdom, yet to be arrived. The preaching of the gospel was successful. Look at this little phrase, if you would, with me in verse 20. Howbeit the disciples <coughs> stood round about him. <laughs> there was a church. At Iconium, there were enough disciples that when Paul was dragged outside of the city, when the crowds dispersed, they were probably going to give Paul a burial. They thought he was dead. They come out to mourn him, to show him that proper respect and to bury him. And as they are gathering around him, maybe even getting ready to reach down and pick him up. Can you imagine the surprise of that? You're reaching out for Paul, thinking it's this dead corpse, and all of a sudden it jumps up. <laughs> well, it's not it, it's Paul. He's alive. I mean, think about this. The fact that, that they probably, in stoning him with stones, would have aimed for his head and probably damaged his skull. The Bible doesn't say for sure, but it's very likely that that happened, and yet he could still have equilibrium and balance to be able to get up and to be able to know who he was and where he was and to walk back into the city. And he didn't do that because he was disoriented either. He did that because... He was a man of godly courage because he walked in the power of the Spirit of God. And he goes back into the city. Now the next day they leave and they depart for Derby. 
I believe one of the reasons he went back into Lystra, though I don't know if he preached the gospel, the Bible doesn't say, I'll guarantee you this, it would have greatly encouraged and strengthened the faith of those disciples to realize that Paul didn't just get up and say, hey man, I got stoned once and almost died. I'm getting out of here. He didn't just immediately panic and flee. No, he walked determinedly back into the city and I believe with those disciples. And you know, I believe there was probably in Paul, though he was in great pain and agony, the same spirit of the apostles when they were beaten and commanded not to preach anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they left that beating, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. And I believe that though he was in great pain and agony, I believe that Paul rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. That there were disciples, that there was a church established, that the enemy did not win. That he was grateful that God spared his life or resurrected him to life so that he could continue to proclaim the gospel. And it would have strengthened the determination of the believers there in their faith in God and in the courage to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ in their community. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. Do you have a daily time in the Word of God? You say, yes, sir, I'm in the Word of God every day. I have my daily devotions. Yes, sir, I sure do. Great. Do you pray every day? Yes, sir, I sure do. I spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And not just at meals, even though that would count. But there are other times when I pray than just, Lord, thank you for this food and bless it to my body. There are other times I pray. Yep, yep, great. It's a regular, so Bible reading is a regular part of your life? Yes, sir. Prayer is a regular part of your life? Yes, sir. Is witnessing a regular part of your life? Yes, sir. Praise God. Keep at it. But what if you could say yes to the first two questions, but not to the third? Oh, yeah, I'm in the Word of God. I love my time in God's Word. I'm growing. I'm learning. I'm spending time in prayer. I even pray for unsaved people that I know to get saved. But you know, no, I'm not regularly, consistently sharing the gospel. And there's really one, only one appropriate answer that's going to be pleasing to God. And you know what that is? Lord, would you please forgive me for my disobedience? Therefore, James 4, 17, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Lord, would you forgive me? And Lord, in your grace, as you transform me, would you fill me with the compassion of Christ? Would you give me a vision for men's souls? Would you be, give me the courage by your Holy Spirit to share the gospel? See, I'm not very, I'm, I'm, I'm not much of an outgoing personality. You can take some gospel tracts and hand them out. You can leave a gospel tract with a generous tip. You can invite people to our fall festival. We've got some flyers out there. You can go and invite somebody and ask them to come. There are things that you can do for the sake of the gospel. You may have to start with baby steps, but take that next step. And today, commit, Lord, I want to regularly, faithfully, from now on through the rest of my life, consistently be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, do a powerful work in my life. May my life be an evidence of your miraculous power as you transform me in the way that I respond, in the way that I treat people, in the way that I serve, in the way that I give to people, in, in the way that, that I react when people act against me. God, may they see the supernatural, miraculous grace of God, Lord, in my life. And through that, may it open up doors of opportunity to share the gospel and help me to be a faithful witness for you. Shall we pray?
Our invitation this morning will be short and simple. We will not have a come forward invitation, but I would invite you after the service. If you have a question or a need, or maybe God worked in your heart and you made a definite decision and choice, you had a definite response to the Lord this morning, I would love to hear about it, rejoice with you and how God's working in your life, pray for you and do what I can to help you to walk with God and to obey him. So please come and see me after the service. If if you have a prayer request, if you have a need, if you'd like some biblical counsel, I would be glad, or my wife, if you're a lady, would be glad to meet with you and help you. But I would plead with you a couple of things. First of all, turn from the vanity of false religion. Any religion or philosophy that claims that you can have eternal life any other way than only faith in Jesus Christ is false. And you need to turn from false gods and false philosophies, the one true living God, the one true faith in the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure if you've ever done that or not, please come and see me after the service. If you're watching by way of live stream, please send me a text or an email. Let me know of your need. I'll converse with you. You can have a phone call, conversation. But I would love to help you with that. Because the most important decision you'll ever make is what will you do with Jesus? Will you trust him? Are you ready to face God in eternity? Brothers and sisters in Christ, If you have not made a definite and clear commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to be a consistent, faithful gospel witness, to be looking and praying for and expecting gospel opportunities, and that's not been a regular part of your life, only if you mean business with God. But if you do, would you acknowledge that to him, ask his forgiveness And would you make that commitment to him to be that faithful witness of his gospel? As our pianist plays just a stanza or two of our invitation song, would you do business with God?